0: This morning, uh, we're moving along in the sections of scripture where Paul is imprisoned in prison in Jerusalem and then uh, taken to Caesarea uh, and he's been in Caesarea for two years under Felix. And that now Felix has been uh, su- su- succeeded, excuse me, uh, by Porcius Festus. And this is where we'll pick up this morning in Acts 25. Listen to the word of God. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. After he stayed among them none more than eight or ten days, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem that there be... Try, and, excuse me, and there be tried on the charges before me. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, and as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, uh, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, And when I was was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make a defense concerning the charge laid against him. And when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem And he tried and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed uh, to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience Uh, the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, but have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word. That your word would be living and active and true uh, in our hearts and in our lives. We know that it is living. We know that it's active. We know that it's true. But we ask that your spirit would be present to show us those things, to, to apply the word to our life, to build us up in the body of Christ. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, there's a saying, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Meaning, if someone pulls a trick on you, if they, they pull the wool over your eyes one time, you should be wary of them the second time. You shouldn't fall prey to their goofy prank because now you know they're a trickster. Well, sometimes the same is true with, with liars. When someone has lied to us once or twice, we're, we're more cautious of them. We say to, to ourselves, how can I be sure that I can trust them on other things. And sometimes the thinking goes, well, you know, if someone just tells a small lie, the person might say, you can still trust me on the big things. I wouldn't lie about those. But the reality is, if you can't be trusted with something small, with something little, how do we know we can trust you with something big? We're in a passage of Scripture where we see Paul getting the opportunity to testify again. And we'll see next week in chapter 26 what he actually says, the testimony that he actually gives again. But in this passage, it's significant that Paul is vindicated before Festus. Paul is shown to be truthful. Even Festus, the the pagan ruler, believes him. And one of the things that this goes to show us is not only is Paul trustworthy with the events that have happened in his own life, he is not guilty of anything that should deserve being imprisoned. We can also trust Him when it comes to the message of the Gospel. The message that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14 and 15 says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he, he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. But notice what Paul sees his preaching about the resurrection to be. It is testimony. It is representing God. And if he's lying about the resurrection, then he's misrepresenting God. His testimony is false. Now, take a step back from that. That's what testifying about the resurrection is, and ask yourself this question. If Paul was not trustworthy in the court cases before the Roman tribune, do you think he could be trustworthy about the resurrection? You see, in this passage, Paul is vindicated for telling the truth before Festus. And even Festus, who is not a believer, recognized Paul isn't doing anything wrong. He's telling me the truth. And the point is that Paul will go to Rome on trumped-up charges. Paul will go to Rome and testify, but he has done nothing wrong. And if Paul's testimony is consistent on this, we can at least say, okay, Paul is an honest person. The same testimony... The same character of the man who gives testimony before the the Romans here and, and King Agrippa is the same person who testifies that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Do you see some of the connections going on there? And as Paul goes to Rome, he is going to give that same testimony about Jesus Christ. So in this passage, our main point is this. Paul is vindicated before men. In terms of this earthly trial, in terms of what has happened that has landed him in prison, Paul is vindicated before men, particularly Festus. And we've broken this passage up this morning into into three points, and I want to just kind of explain what we're doing here. The first two, I'm going to spend primarily, we're just going to walk through the narrative. It's going to be a little bit different today than I sometimes do, in that usually I try to make application points for each point. What I'm going to do is we're going to walk through the narrative with point one and two, and then at the end, we're going to tie it all together and say, what what do we learn from this? Because really, this whole passage is one unit. And we actually we could have taken chapter 26 uh, as part of the unit because it continues and shows us what Paul actually testifies. Um, but that would have just made for a really long sermon, and there was a Fellowship Sunday today, and I knew you would all be anxious for that. So uh, that's how we're going to walk through it. And one of the things about narratives, when you you read narratives – they're kind of like, if, if you remember from your high school English where you do plot diagrams, where you have the introduction and the rising action and the climactic point, and some of the, those are homeschoolers, maybe you've, you've done that. Uh, that's how narrative works, and it works the same way in Scripture, and that's why I want to try to move through this as, as one big chunk so you can just see how it all builds and, and culminates. And then we're going to back up, and I want to place this event just within the larger picture of Acts because I think that's how we, we best can understand how to apply it. So first this morning, Paul is vindicated when Festus hears Paul and finds him innocent. So these are the events that happens. Festus has come to power. He's, he's a Roman tribune. He's a Roman commander, and he's ruling from Caesarea over the region. He comes to power, and the Jews try to trick him. Look at verses 1 to 3. Now three days after Festus has arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem to Caesarea, The chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush uh, an ambush to kill him on the way. We talked uh, last week or a few weeks ago about the men who had taken the vow to ambush him that they would not eat or drink anything until they had an opportunity to kill Paul. Uh, this is two years later, and I made this suggestion those guys probably broke their vows. Uh, I don't think they starved themselves to death. But it does make you wonder if some of the same guys that made that vow two years ago or a little more are part of the same group that's plotting here. And think you have to ask yourself, how much did these people really hate Paul that they would for two years be stewing on him? That, that, that as soon as they have an opportunity, they, they again resurrect this plan to, let's, let's try to ambush Paul. We'll, we'll get him on the road while he's traveling, you know, figuring that maybe it would be only one or two soldiers that would come down with him, maybe five or ten. Uh, you'll remember when Felix sent him from Jerusalem uh, to uh, Caesarea, you'll remember that, that when they left the city, there were 470 soldiers, 70 of them uh, horsemen. So they're still plotting. Felix responds that they can come to Caesarea. Look at verses 4 and 5. Uh, I think, by the way, this is just the providence of God. I, I don't know that uh, uh, Festus excuse me, knew that, that they were having any plots. Although maybe Felix had let him know, hey, you've got to watch out for this Paul guy. They're trying to kill him. But notice verses 4 and 5. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against them. Again, perhaps Festus is aware of the plot. Perhaps not. But notice the hand of God in protecting Paul. It would be more natural for Festus to to make the ruling in Caesarea, which is the seat of his power. So he he begins this trial, it says in verse 6, he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days and went down to Caesarea. The next day he took the seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So these, these Jewish guys, Felix, uh, excuse me, Festus is in Jerusalem for eight to ten days. And as soon as Festus gets back to Caesarea, they, they are right there knocking on the door. Okay, let's have this trial. They are that anxious to get a hold of Paul. Look at verse 7. When he arrived the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. This is the first time that Luke emphasizes again in our passage that they cannot prove these charges. He said it in the previous chapter, chapter 24, you look at verses 12 and 13. And they and they did not find him me disputing with anyone and stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or the synagogues or the city, neither, this is Paul speaking, neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. In 25 verse 8, Paul asserts his innocence. He argues in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offenses. Paul's story stays consistent. And Luke continually reminds us these charges couldn't be proven. These charges are false. You know, even in our day and age, sometimes, even though we, you know, we rightly say that a, that a person is innocent until proven guilty, we, we sometimes have that mindset, well, you know, they wouldn't have got arrested if they hadn't been doing something wrong. And you can imagine in Paul's day and age, when they don't have quite the same system of justice and, and legal uh, tradition that, that we have, you can imagine them hearing Paul is in prison and just kind of by default assuming, well, gee, I wonder what Paul did. We're saying, well, maybe some of these charges are true. Or by the time Luke is writing this and, and they, they have gotten to Rome and he's writing to Theopolis, perhaps thinking, well, Paul wouldn't have gotten sent all the way to Rome if there wasn't some reason to send him. In fact, uh, the book of Acts ends with Paul before the Jews. It says in Acts 28.17, after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or our customs, the customs of our Father, yet I was delivered." as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Paul is trustworthy on his innocence. Paul is continually trustworthy as he gives testimony. He's a reliable witness. He's very forthright about what he's being charged for. He's very forthright and clear about what he hasn't done and what he, uh, what he has done. He has shared already that he was in the temple peaceably and reminds the tribunal of that. If you can trust Paul on this, we need to see as well that we can trust Paul when it comes to testifying to the Gospel. He's going to tell us in Acts 26 one more time that he has seen the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can imagine some of the the Jews and some of the Greeks hearing that, the Romans hearing that for the first time and thinking, is this guy out of his mind? But then looking at his testimony and saying, yeah, but everything else he says makes sense. Is he crazy? Crazy people no- normally don't talk like this. Is he lying? Well, but lying people usually don't would lie about maybe everything or certainly more. We haven't caught him in a lie yet. It goes to show Paul's Trustworthiness. So Festus, as part of this trial, sees nothing wrong and says, Well, maybe Paul wants to go and and be tried before the Jews. This is really a a Jewish matter. This is part of their law. Maybe we should let them decide it. Look at verses 9 through 12. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Uh, So you can kind of see the the plot thinking, the action is rising. We know as the reader, if he goes down to Jerusalem, they're going to kill him. We know what they're plotting. But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribune. So he's under the authority of the Roman government at this point. And he says, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die... I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you will go. It's fascinating here that, that Paul says that he is willing to die if there is something that is worthy of his death. He's saying, in effect, if I really did something wrong, if I'm really a criminal, then I deserve to be punished. I'm I'm not an expert in the law. I've never been to court. But I would imagine that people that know they're not innocent don't typically talk this way. Maybe they dare the court, well, if you can find something. But people that know they're guilty typically don't say, well, if you find something, then I should be put to death. Rather, they'll kind of say, well, if you find something, it won't be true. And Paul here says, if you actually were to find something, if I was actually guilty of something, I deserved to be put to death. He shows himself to be submissive to the authority. So he says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, let every person uh, be subject to the governing authorities for there is... W- no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. This let every person, or whoever resists the authorities, you could, you could apply this to Paul. Paul obeys Paul's own words that he writes in Romans when he writes Scripture. He shows himself to be a person of integrity. Second, he appeals to Caesar, and this is his right as a a Roman citizen. He knows if he goes down to Jerusalem, it's going to be kind of a kangaroo court. You know what a kangaroo court is, right? Where the charges are trumped up, where where the verdict is decided before uh, before you even uh, get in there. A couple of the kids are smiling because at Victory Valley, they do this thing and they call it kangaroo court. Uh, and you bring up charges for people that, that have done things, but you already know uh, whatever they get charged with, they're going to get like oatmeal dumped on their head or jump in the pond. or you know, We call it kangaroo court because if you get put up on charges, you're, you're guilty. Well, in this case, Paul knows that that's what's going to happen if, he, if he's going to go to Jerusalem. And so he appeals to Caesar. And we begin to see that that this is fulfilling the plan and purpose of God. You'll remember in in Acts 23.11, the Lord stood before him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so also you must testify in Rome. The plan and purpose of God is working its way out. And Paul is a Roman citizen, so he has this right. And Paul stands before Festus and he appeals to that right that he has under the laws of men. I want to go and testify to Caesar. You see how awesome the plan and purpose of God is? There are probably a hundred or a thousand different ways God could have seen that Paul got to Rome. But the way that God takes Paul to Rome allows him to speak the truth of the gospel to people in positions of power. If Paul was free, he could have just taken a uh, you know, taken some money, uh, bought a boat trip, traveled over land, whatever and he could have got into Rome. But he wouldn't have been able to walk into Rome and get an audience with Caesar. He wouldn't have been able to walk into Caesarea and just get an audience with Festus. God has Paul in this position in this prison and we would look at it we go, that's not fair. But it's part of the plan of God. It serves a a higher purpose. And sometimes we look at things in our life, things that are happening, and we go, that's not fair. But maybe you don't know what the plan and purpose of God is. You know that He has one. His Word tells us He has one. We need to trust Him in the way He's unfolding it but oftentimes, God walks us through hardships and through difficulties and keeps us in these positions because He has something in store, some sort of unfolding of His plan that we can't even imagine or dream of, and we need to trust Him. And this is what we learn as we walk through the passage. The second thing is, then, Paul is vindicated when Festus gives him an opportunity to witness. So Paul again has the opportunity. And in fact, we have Herod Agrippa coming up. He would have been one of the kings who reigned in, in Jerusalem. Uh, he comes up with his wife, Bernice, and they uh, are given an opportunity to hear Paul. Look at verses 13 to 16. Now when the days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. They stayed there many days. Festus, uh, As they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out the case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to, to give up anyone before the, accused, the accusers face-to-face had the opportunity to make his defense uh, concerning the charge laid against him. Uh, verse 18 and 19 continues. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him and their own religion about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So, Festus has found Paul innocent. Why does the, the narrative repeat itself here? Why does, why does Luke's uh, uh, writing uh, repeat? Uh, we often, in our day and age, you know, if we were the editors of a, of a modern book, a work of fiction or nonfiction, we would say, okay, you're, you're using up some words here. We, we already, the reader already knows this has happened. You, you can just summarize it by saying, and Festus filled in Agrippa on what had happened. But Luke is emphasizing these things. Luke is repeating these things. This is often a a pattern that we see in the Old Testament in Hebrew narrative. Something will be repeated so the point is driven home. And I think Luke is is picking up on some of those features that we see elsewhere in Scripture. And, And he's driving home the point. Paul is innocent. And even Festus sees it. And Festus doesn't just see it. He's telling Agrippa... I don't know what to do about this. This guy's innocent. We, we could let him go, but he appealed to Caesar. Tell, give me some of your wisdom. Tell me what you think I should do. Notice here, Festus even knows what the main issue was about. That Jesus, who was dead, but Paul asserted to be alive. Don't know if Festus understands here yet that Paul was preaching a resurrection. We'll see in the next chapter he comes to understand that, doesn't believe it, doesn't become a Christian. But at least he's, he's getting a taste of what this gospel entails. A man in power, a man of prestige, hearing and seeing the life of Paul and beginning to, to think about the issues of the gospel, still not sure what to do. Now, Festus is going to uphold the law and send Paul to Caesar, verse 20 and 21. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked him whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa is interested in the case. Agrippa says to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So even now, as Festus introduces him, he reminds us, he says, well, this Paul is innocent. Festus here, even, look at these next verses, goes to bat for Paul. Festus says, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. As he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. So Festus is willing to send him, but he is even telling publicly there's really no reason to send him because he's not guilty of anything. It's kind of like when, when, um, when the DA starts taking your side and he's willing to drop the charges, if the DA is on your side, if the judge is on your side, usually your court case goes pretty well. And in this case, Festus is on the side of Paul saying, there's nothing wrong, but you know what? He appealed to Caesar. I'm not sending him because I think he's guilty. I'm sending him because he appealed. Verse 26 and 27, But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner to, indicate the char- to not to indicate the charges against him. Could, could you imagine writing this letter to, to Caesar? Dear Caesar, I'm sending you this prisoner so you can judge his case. I'm really sure he's not guilty. He hasn't done anything wrong. But here, you need to have this case. I mean, if you did that at your job, you know, dear boss, I solved this problem, but I'm sending it up to you to solve. What would your boss say to you? Uh, You're not a very good worker. Why do do we have you in the company? Why are you there? What what are you doing with your time? You can see the, the awkward position this puts Festus in. Okay, this guy's innocent, but he's appealed to Caesar what do I say? It's the plan and purpose of God to, to vindicate Paul but also to see that Paul is a witness to the ends of the earth, to, to the very seat of the Roman government. What do we do with this passage? Well, not many of us are going to find ourselves in prison and appealing to Caesar. Um, it's just not the way our law court works. Uh, if, you, if you get in prison... Uh, if you get arrested, call a lawyer. Uh, don't call me and ask me for advice from Acts 25. I can tell you about Acts. I can't tell you what to do with the law. So that's not how we apply it to ourselves as, as believers. But what do we do with this passage? Four, four observations I want to make for applying this passage. First, we find Jesus being faithful to his word. You can always trust that Jesus is faithful to his word. There, there are a number of different levels here in which Jesus is faithful to his word. And what I mean by that is there's a number of different places in Acts that you can see that this passage is being faithful to things that Jesus has already said. First, in Acts 1.8, Jesus has promised, when you receive the power from the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Rome isn't, physically speaking, the ends of the earth. But Rome being the center of, of an imperial empire uh, and Jerusalem being out on the edges of it, in a way, going to Rome in the center of this ungodly empire is, is about as far away as you can get from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. In terms of spiritual conditions of Jerusalem and the early church and, and the spiritual conditions of Rome at the time, you're about as far away as you can get. Going to Rome is part of God's taking the plan, gospel, part of God's plan to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Rome is the center of the known world. It's the, the apex of, of Gentile civilization. You know how you can go into New York City and you can walk down the streets and you can hear people from, from every language? You can, you can go to the shops and you can buy food literally from like all over the world. Uh, you can get Chinese. You can get sushi from Japan. You can go to the Korean markets. You can get stuff from Africa and Jamaica. It's, it's all over. The world literally comes to New York City the world in that day and age literally would come to Rome. And what better way to take the gospel to the ends of the earth to go to the very center of the world in that day? God is keeping his plan. You'll notice that Acts 28:28, 28, 28, when the gospel, or excuse me when the book of Acts ends, it says, "Therefore let it be known, this is Paul in Rome. Therefore let it be known that salva- the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The gospel going to Rome is as if, in a, in a theological way, it's gone to the ends of the earth. Now it has to, to trickle down, if you will, into every tongue, tribe, and nation. There are still people throughout the world that need to hear. But the idea is it's, it's hit the center of Gentile civilization. Everything else is just trickling into the rest of it. It's it's a major turning point, if you will, in God fulfilling his plan. We can trust Jesus. Why should we do missions today? Whether you go across the world or whether you go across the street, you are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, you might not think of crossing the street as, as going to the ends of the earth, but But from the perspective of the first century, they can't even imagine a place such as North America, let alone the cities that we have and the streets that we have. And yet the gospel needs to go there and it is going there. God keeps his word. The ultimate purpose of Jesus and his word is to glorify the name of God in all creation by exercising his kingship, by sending witnesses and ambassadors out into this and this is why paul is going to rome and all of this in this chapter is this lead up to paul leading and going to rome second application we find jesus raising up a faithful witness and each one of us has a responsibility to be a faithful witness to the lord the scriptures say that we are god's ambassadors as if God himself were making his appeal through us that calling people that they should be reconciled unto God. And in this passage Paul is being raised up as a witness. Notice what Festus says in verse 26, but I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I brought him to all of you, especially before you, King Agrippa. One more time, Paul gets this opportunity to speak to the people of power and authority that that are the movers and the shakers of, of the society and the city in Caesarea. And how does he get there? Because God put him there. If you were in prison for two years for something that you didn't do, how would you feel? If you were in prison for two years simply for being a Christian, how would you feel? Maybe saying, why does God have me here? Maybe saying, God, why aren't you using me? Why aren't you doing something with me? Maybe questioning God. Like, you know, God, this seems like a waste of my time. But out of Paul being in prison for two years for something he didn't do, he is able to testify before people he would not normally be able to reach. Let me ask you this. Does God have you right now in some situation that you can't understand why he has you there? Maybe a job that you want to just get out of and you've been trying. Maybe a situation in your life, maybe uh, a, a relationship that's falling apart, a friendship that you're losing, maybe just some regular sort of hardship, sickness, or illness, and you wonder, why in the world does God have me going through this? I can't tell you exactly why God has you going through this. But Scripture shows us that God always has a plan. And the Scripture shows us that God often uses His servants in and through suffering to fashion and shape them to be greater witnesses to Him, to His goodness, to His gospel. Sometimes God walks you on this long and winding path to take you where he needs you to be so that you can be a witness. And if we were planning the path, we would go, well, I'm just going to go from A to B. And God says, no, 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 you're going to go that way all around to get to B because it teaches us who he is and we can testify to his goodness. Maybe God has you in a situation where there's someone that you can witness to and your unique circumstances in life Allow you to say something to that person that no one else can say. Maybe you can identify with some sort of pain they're going through because God has walked you through something similar. Maybe just you're the only one in this room today that, that knows that person, That's a believer, that, that you're the only believer that, that can talk to them, whatever it might be. Look into your life and say, Where has God raised me up? What situations are is he working out in my life? Just as he in in this events with Paul providentially works it out so that Paul could be in this place that no one else in effect could get to in this way. Jesus raises up faithful witnesses. If God is doing that in your life, we should remember the words of Paul in Romans one sixteen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greeks. Even though Jesus is not mentioned in this passage at all in, in Acts 25, we're to see this as the unfolding of what Jesus has said in 20, chapter 23 when he says to Paul, take courage, you're going to Rome. 2 Timothy four sixteen to 18 tells us we think this is what happened when Paul got to Rome at least the first time. He says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, for that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. For the Lord... The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. The Lord raises up witnesses. The Lord protects his witnesses. And at the proper time, the Lord calls his witnesses home. Third application, I just want you to briefly notice how God sways the hearts of leaders God can sway the hearts of leaders even in our day. Here, Festus is uh, far from the Lord. He doesn't believe in the Lord. He doesn't um, respond to the gospel. We'll see in Acts 26 when Paul says about the resurrection, Festus says, well, you're out of your mind. But even in that, even in Festus not getting converted, God grants Paul a favorable God grants it to Paul that Festus would have a favorable opinion of him. That's the hand of God. And sometimes people and leaders don't get saved. But we should pray for them nonetheless. And we should even pray in our day and age that that our leaders, that our judges, that our rulers, that our lawmakers, that they would have, even if they don't get saved, that they would have a favorable opinion of Christians that they would see that we're trying to be good, upstanding citizens, that we're trying to to be innocent, that we're respectful of the law, that we will submit to the government. We should pray for their salvation, but we should also pray that they would have a favorable opinion of us as Christians. And then lastly, I want to ask this question. What does this teach about the character of God and the grace of the gospel that the message of Jesus is going to go to Caesar. Notice several times in this passage the repetition of either I appeal to Caesar or to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you must go, or saying, well, I have to send him to Caesar now even though I don't find him guilty. There's this, there's this reverberating theme. The gospel is going to go to Caesar. The gospel is going to go to Caesar. Paul is going to testify before Caesar. Think about who Caesars are. They are emperors. And some of them, Nero in particular, who we think, according to church history, is probably the one who later killed Peter and Paul, Nero was brutal. These were men of war. These were men of battle. These were men who were prideful. These were men who took upon themselves the title of Lord. Lord Caesar. Kurios, the same title that we give to Christ. In fact, in 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, we read of Jesus, that He is, quote, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That same phrase, God and Savior, could actually be used by Romans of Caesar. They would call Caesar God and Savior. Here is this height of, of rebellion, of idolatry. Of someone that is not going to come to God. And God sees that the gospel goes to them. Think about that. Caesar in Rome is sort of like uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Remember how prideful Nebuchadnezzar was? Remember how he walks out on, on uh, on his roof, on his wall, and he's like, Look at all that my hands have accomplished. The Roman Empire was the largest empire in history at that point. To be the Caesar was to to pretty much have absolute authority. Yeah, at various times they had the Senate, but, but you really had a lot of strength and power. You weren't going to be someone, typically, who would come to God. The Roman Caesar was the height of paganism. Rome was the center of this world, and Jesus name goes to those who are far from him. How does Jesus spread his kingdom? He sends a message out and he uses Paul as an ambassador all the way to the most important king of the day. Second Corinthians 520, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, as sinners, none of us would come to God. But what does God do in the Gospel? He brings Himself to us. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is made possible so that we can go to heaven if we will believe in Jesus. Not only that, God sends out His witnesses to be these ambassadors of the kingdom it's as if one country is reaching out to another. The real king is reaching out to that sham lord that Caesar thinks that he is. And the gospel is going to permeate that society eventually. Think of how great God is that he would do this. Think about how merciful he is. He could have Wipe the Roman Empire off the face of the earth for its rebellion in just a second. But he is patient and he is gracious and he sees that the gospel goes to these people, giving them opportunities to believe and then even sending the Holy Spirit that he might convert them. That's what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does. And all of this in Acts 25 is a lead up to say God is saving a people unto himself from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation. God is making his glory known throughout all creation so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the true King on the throne. That You have delegated authority and power to worldly governments, but they are not the ultimate authority. They are not the true seat of authority. The true seat is where the Son sits at the right hand of the Father and rules over all things on our behalf and then is saving us and making us His children, giving us a share in that inheritance. Such a goodness to the message that we can be reconciled to God. Lord, we ask that You would shape us today. Make us better witnesses. Maybe there's some area in our lives where we have to trust Your hand. Trust that You've put us in these situations. Trust that You've equipped us. Maybe even trust that You will give us courage and the words to say. Oh Lord, we pray that You would vindicate Your Gospel and send it out before every tongue, tribe, and nation and that You would bring in the lost. In Your name we pray. Amen.